Hello, and welcome to The Dirt. We're back. We're doing it. A podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And I'm still looking at Anna on Zoom, but but Anna's like a mile away from me. This is amazing. <laughs> a literal mile. Yes. We're neighbors well, now. Need not mutually dox us. Where? What if somebody like hears... A- don't, what if bird? somebody like goes all cereal on us and it's like, <laughs> I heard a specific, a specific bell from a specific church. And I, I read the police scanners and saw that there was a response to it. I what know it our happens? listeners love research. However, I think for the most part. That'd be weird. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm directed in the script to make enthusiastic <laughs> intonations. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, uh-huh. I, I, uh, so. Uh, it's so good to be here. Thanks it's, for yeah, having so. me. <laughs> <laughs> the whole state of Pennsylvania. Thanks. Uh, uh, so our lives and our careers continue to progress and fate has brought us back together. Uh, you say but fate. Not, I mean, what is I fate tried but a really series hard. of actions? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, but not without so much work and stress and things distracting us from our pod calling. Yes. Um, so, Anna, you've been really mired in packing and shipping and traveling and now unpacking and calming your irate cats. So I've <laughs> stepped up on this script. I'm so and put grateful. Together a little treat for you, uh, which is going to be a complete surprise to Anna, provided I'm coming that in. Anna Absolutely. doesn't scroll I down. promised yeah. I wouldn't yeah. scroll. I know. I know. So, like... I wrote this entire script on my personal Gmail, like on my drive. And so Anna has only just secrets. Yeah. So, um, but this is this because this is supposed to be treat. It's like a, this is supposed to be treat. Um, this is. You've uh, been spending a, too much time with your little dog. <laughs> and no one else. Um, and uh, so it's a bit of a belated birthday gift to you, but oh, it's also you. a bit of an early birthday gift to us. Because our birthdays are um, coming. We're turning five. We're turning five. So um, we're a so whole this hand. Is full of, yep. This is full of fun facts and curious trivia uh, that you've maybe not already encountered before. Those are some of my favorite things. I know. I know. <laughs> and if you have encountered before, just let me tell you anyway, because some people listening won't have heard it before. Yep. So this, this comes just, along with... In the past month or so, I've learned many, many things about myself. <laughs> I'm going on my own little mental health journey. And yeah. uh, boy. Uh, As luck would have it, I stepped up, sure. But then I promptly stepped onto a rake. Uh, by a getting a one. Yeah, not a real one. Um, by getting super, super sick amid the Canadian wildfire smoke um, that made its presence known on the East Coast. Um, so for me, that meant spending several days heavily medicated in like a pretzel shape on my tiny couch, which Anna has now seen and experienced. It's tininess. It ate me. It's a very I sank small couch. <laughs> much farther than I thought I was going to. Um, so what did what what did I do on that couch? I read Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. So this time on Wikipedia, I stumbled upon a list of pretenders, Uh, not the band, not Mm -hmm. the Foo Fighters album, Mm -hmm. and not the 90s drama Beloved by Moms. Um, I forgot about that show. But that's like like momcore. So, but rather pretenders being people who claim a title or position that is not considered theirs by everyone else. We'll meet a few of those, 
But that list set me on a path to track down some of the earliest, wackiest, and scammiest cases of pretending scams. from scams. around the world. Scams, scams, scams. So, for each of these, I what I did, what my process was <laughs> while I was super sick, was I put the Wikipedia link in a doc. Mm-hmm. And then when I was feeling better, I pursued primary sources where I could. Hmm. These are their stories. Dun, dun. So for our first vignette of a, a pretender, someone pretending or, or allegedly pretending to a throne. <laughs> um, you think they're going to get litigious? No, no. <laughs> allegedly. I'm just, I'm, no. Well, no, no, because this is like the the, this is these are all these are all like nuanced, Um, of course. So first vignette, we head back to Achaemenid Persia to the time of Darius the first. The Achaemenid Empire or the first Persian Empire was established in 559 BCE by Cyrus the second, better known as Cyrus the Great. The empire's name, so the Achaemenid Empire, comes from the first king of the dynasty, or rather the Greek form of his name, Achaemenes, Mm. of whom we know nothing other than his name and role as the apical ancestor. So that means he's the apex of the genealogy, so the first person of that family line, whether or not they were actually real. Like some people have, like some people have apical ancestors who are like Theseus. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, it doesn't right. have to be a real person, right? Or it can just be uh, like the uh, like Andrew Mellon is an apical ancestor of the Mellons, like the industrialist family. So that that's sort of what's going on here. So we know about Achaemenes from the Behistun inscription, uh, which we've talked about before. Do you have a question? Yes. Okay. What's your question? Why do members of the Mellon family always have to get married in a church? I don't know. Because they can't elope. Oh, boy. Okay, thank you. We know about Achaemenes from the Bastion inscription, which we've talked about before. Um, it's a monumental trilingual inscription emblazoned across a cliffside that was instrumental, but not the only one, <laughs> involved in deciphering cuneiform. Um, and that's because the same text is listed in Elamite, Old Persian, and the Babylonian dialect of Akkadian. Um, in it, like in the inscription itself, uh, Darius declares his lineage, his blessing by the god Ahura Mazda to be the rightful king of Persia, and the series of pretenders he stamped out during the one-year period of upheaval following the death of the previous king, Cambyses II. Oh, these names are ringing some tiny bells. Okay. Okay. So the inscription is accompanied by a relief sculpture of Darius in profile, facing right, holding a bow, and he's depicted larger than the two attendants behind him to the left. So he's he's the great, he's truly the Lou Gaul here. He's the great man. Um, big guy. So he's the big guy, uh, but not the big guy because he's also featured. Um, so to Darius's right is a series of nine smaller men who each have their hands bound behind their backs and are connected by a rope tied among their necks. Each of them are labeled by the, their name and their false claim to kingship. Mm. For example, one says, this is Frada. He lied, saying, I am king of Margiana. <laughs> Over the scene is carved a relief of a circle with wings and a masculine figure inside it. This is called the winged solar disc, and it's a representation of Ahura Mazda, the Zoroastrian god who conferred rightful kingship upon Darius. So he's the actual big guy. Yeah, we haven't talked about Zoroastrian stuff in a hot minute. In a very long time, yeah. yeah. 
So in the inscription, each of those pretenders is called out by name for their part in rebellions within the lands under Persian rule, but there's someone else mentioned in the text that scholars think is also included on the relief, hmm. but, but doesn't have his name there. One of Darius's feet is raised in that relief, stomping on an unlabeled man who's reaching up, maybe for mercy. He's kind We're of just like, like, no, please don't. Which is kind of for mercy. Yeah, no, I'm just saying like that. <laughs> I feel like that's how anyone um, might react to a stomp. Yeah, so it's it's thought that this is Galmada, mm -hmm. the most perfidious pretender of all, who came for Darius's throne itself as king of Persia. So Anna is now going to read from the inscription. Quote, And Darius the king says, This is what I did by the intercession of Ahura Mazda after I received the kingship. Cambyses by name, Cyrus's son of our family, formerly held kingship. That Cambyses, his brother was Smerdis by name, and mother and father were together with him, and that Cambyses killed Smerdis. When Cambyses killed Smerdis, the people didn't know that Smerdis was dead. Then Cambyses went to Egypt. Then the people caused destruction. Furthermore, the lies grew throughout the nations, both in Persia and in Medea. Me Media? Media? Media. Media. Media, where the Medes are from. Oh, right. Yeah. The Medes. The Medes. Uh, and throughout other nations. And then a man. A Magus Gaumata by name, he from Nashirma, a mountain, Harakatarish by name, from there 14 days of month Mekanish had passed. Thus he rose up. He lied to the people. I am Smerdis, Cyrus the son, Cambyses the brother. Then all the people rebelled against Cambyses and went to him, both the Persians and the, oh, and the Medes, there they are, and the other nations, and he held kingship. Nine days of month Karmabatash had passed, and thus the you know the throne was seized from Cambyses, and then Cambyses died of natural causes. Unexpected. And Darius the king says, This kingship that Gamata the Magus took away from Cambyses, this kingship for a long time belonged to our family. Me. <laughs> Accordingly, Gamata the Magus took it away from Cambyses, both the Persians and the Medes and the other nations. He took them away from him, and he made them his possessions. He held kingship. And Darius the king says there was no one, not a Persian or a Mede or anyone from our family, who received the kingship from Gamata the Magus. The people greatly feared him. He slaughtered the people, those who formerly knew Smerdis. For that reason, he slaughtered the people, lest they know that I am not Smerdis, Cyrus his son, and no one with anything related to Gamata Magus came forth until I came. Oh, okay, he's getting rid of potential whistleblowers. After that, I prayed to Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda sent me aid. By the intercession of Ahura Mazda, ten days of month Bakiatish had passed. Thus, with a few men, I killed Gomatamagus and his accompanying men, his foremost followers, in a fortress, in a town, in a district in Media. There I killed him. And Shikalmatish. Thank you. Shikalmatish. Thank you. Uh, I killed him, and I took away his kingship. By the intercession of Ahura Mazda, I held kingship. Ahura Mazda gave me the kingship. So, Smerdis, or Bardia, as his name was in Persian, uh, it's it's really confusing in, in dealing with the Achaemenids because so, so much, it's so frequently. 
Well, no, no, no. Because so frequently the names that we receive, the, the names that are discussed and thrown around mm-hmm. are the Greek forms of their names, mm-hmm. not the uh, Persian forms of their names. Because we get so much, we, because this is... Um, this is so heavily factors into uh, Herodotus and other Greek historians. Uh, yeah, and we've talked about um, how Herodotus treats the Persians or like writes about them anyway. Yeah. 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 Um, but he's also very interested in this story because mm. it's a very interesting story. Mm-hmm. So uh, Smerdis Bardia um, was secretly murdered by his brother Cambyses II. Um, so because he didn't want any competition for the throne. Right. Uh, Cambyses just happened to die. Um, like best, it was Best laid plans, you know. Well, but this was also, uh, you You may have remembered from what you just read, that Cambyses <laughs> went to Egypt. So this is mm-hmm. when Egypt was annexed by Persia. So he could have gotten there and, you know, gotten like a bug bite and... And, and, and done a Howard like just, Carter. It wasn't, yeah. But it wasn't foul play is what's being said right. here. I understand. Um and since everyone thought his very alive brother would succeed him as king, Galmada the Magus, who that's a Zoroastrian priest, um, impersonated him and took control of the Persian Empire. Uh, he lied. And there is nothing Ahura Mazda hates more than a lie. Hmm. Um, Darius' expression of, of Zoroastrianism is often framed as this very like Manichaean, like black and white struggle between good and evil, the light and the lie. Um, that's a, that's a great title. Just the light and the lie. Yeah. And, and so that's something that also, um, really like sticks in people's brains. Like, um, I talked about this, like Tom Holland's book, Persian fire, Mm -hmm. um, is, is extremely readable. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's particularly accurate Mm -hmm. in terms of historiography, but it's very readable and it's very compelling with this because you get this, this real clear sense of the supposed like religious fervor, uh, that's, that's fueling Darius, um, as he like really gets the empire cooking. Um, so Darius's quest to crush pretenders to the throne was as much a cosmological crusade as a political one. He was divinely appointed to stamp out the lie. Mm. You may be wondering where Darius comes into the equation if Cambyses II inherited the crown from his father Cyrus the Great and should have passed it on to his brother Smerdis slash Bardia when he died. So Darius was their second cousin, which means that Darius's great-grandfather Ariamnes was the brother of Cyrus the first, who was the great grandfather of Cambyses the second. That's how the second cousin works. However, the Cyrus cylinder, which you know uh, is known as the first declaration of human rights and, and an object that I have seen in person, um, includes a very, very detailed genealogy that happens to omit the guy who allegedly founded the lineage. Achaemenes? Achaemenes huh. is not listed in uh, Cyrus, this in the Cyrus cylinder. Interesting. There is a theory that Darius might have commissioned the Parsagate inscriptions after the Cyrus the Great's reign and attributed them to him, like as, as backup documents, as like retcon. Yeah. Um, so, moreover, there is a distinct possibility that Galmada didn't exist either. If we are to believe Darius's lineage and shared connection to Achaemenes with his second cousins, the kings of Persia, he's still an outsider to the throne and would have been an usurper in deposing Smerdis slash Bardia 
and seizing power. Sure. However, if he claimed he knew the real Smeritus slash Bardia was actually dead and some shifty priest was impersonating him, eliminating him would have a dual impact. First, he'd restore power to the Achaemenid line, mm -hmm. which Darius was also potentially the first to mention. <laughs> this thing I just Second, made up. He'd be rooting out a liar, which is the worst thing you could be. Mm. So, who was the pretender? Who indeed? Fast forward from the 1890s BCE to the 1890s CE. Wow. When a, I know, right? Did Enough you do fun? that on purpose? No. <laughs> I just had so many that I had to trim it down. And I was like, well, I got to put it in some order. Um, when a Swiss explorer named Louis de Rougemont mm. began publishing memoirs from his expeditions to Australia in the new British monthly magazine, The Wide World. Mm. He had a deep well to draw from since he spent nearly 30 years in central Australia, living among indigenous Australians and assimilating to life there, marrying a woman named Yamba and starting a family. He subjected himself to fact checking at the Royal Geographical Society after he published his first few uh, memoirs, sure. uh, but he couldn't really get into specifics uh, about where he'd been exactly and what he'd been doing since he'd signed a non-disclosure agreement mm. with the prospecting company for whom he worked. This man, but I trust him. <laughs> but he had come across the Gibson expedition in 1874, which is um, a rather famous group of, of, of white men traveling north uh, through <laughs> Australia. De Rougemont had a great life in the outback where he was worshipped as a god by the local community. Excuse me? Yes. Wait, what? Uh, here's an excerpt that Anna's god. going to read that from the Adventures negative of... 10 font. I know. <laughs> well, okay, so it's from the Project Gutenberg, so it's just like it's the fierce. HTML. Yeah, it's fine. I just gotta um, zoom. You can zoom in. Can zoom in. So, this is from uh, the compilation of his work, The Adventures of Louis de Rougemont, which okay. he dedicated to his wife, Yamba. So um, Anna's going to read this. Um, and I just want to give everybody um, a note up top uh, that there, this is just like super racist. So, oh, um, boy. And, and he also uses um, uh, some like epithets for indigenous Australians that are um, not excusing it, but of the time. Um, and so That's just, it. just, yeah. Okay. So, but this is, this is, um, I read basically the whole thing. Um, I was sick for a while. <laughs> and so I was, yeah, I but I hit this point where I was just like, what? what? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> All right. So please. Well, uh, quote and apologies. Never once you see, did I, <laughs> never once you see, it's like a Dudley Do-Right voice. Never once you see, did I lose an opportunity of impressing the savages among whom I dwelt. Yikes. On several occasions, having all the ingredients at my disposal, I attempted to make gunpowder. But truth to tell, my experiments were not attended with very great success. I had char <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like You didn't have to write that, sir. Yeah. Like this this, if this you're entire gonna section up. is just like a... Well, you don't know that he made it up, Anna. Mm. Did you scroll? I did not scroll, but he doesn't you seem just, like the most just reliable narrator. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. So he uh, failed to make gunpowder. I had charcoal, saltpeter, and sulfur ready to my hand, all obtainable from natural sources close by. But the result of all my efforts, and I tried mixing the ingredients in every conceivable way, as if he's like his wife was like behind him, like, well, did you do this one? was a very coarse kind of powder with practically no explosive force, but which would go off with an absurd puff. 
Now, I was very anxious to make an explosive powder, not merely because it would assist me in impressing the blacks, but also because I proposed carrying out certain blasting operations in order to obtain minerals and stones which I thought would be useful. The net result was that although I could not manufacture any potent explosive, yet I did succeed in arousing the intense curiosity of the blacks. My powder burnt without noise, and the natives could never quite make out where the flame came from. I don't like this. As there seemed to be a never-ending eagerness on the part of the blacks to witness the wonders of the white man, I even tried my hand at making ice, a commodity which is, of course, absolutely unknown in Central Australia. The idea came to me one day when I found myself in a very cool cave. No one's been in there ever, I guess, probably, in which there was a well of surprisingly cold water. Accordingly, I filled some opossum skins with the refreshing fluid, which then immediately became far less refreshing, Ugh. placed them in the coolest part of the cave, and then covered them with saltpeter, of which there was an abundance. When I tell you that the experiment was quite fruitless, you will readily understand that I did not always succeed in my role of wonder worker. But whenever I was defeated, it only had the effect of making me set my wits to work to devise something still more wonderful, something which I was certain would be an assured success. So, so far, he has failed to make gunpowder and failed to make ice. And yet he still told us about it. Yeah, he's still talking. <laughs> Whilst taking a stroll in the region of my mountain home one day, my eyes, which were by this time almost as highly trained as those of the blacks themselves, suddenly fastened upon a thin stream of some greenish fluid, which was apparently oozing out of the rocky ground. Closer investigation proved that this was not water. Who is this guy? <laughs> I collected a quant. Why is he just walking around with skinned animals? I'm, I mean, but that you know, like a, I get it. Sure, I collected. That's a, the least silly know, part of this entire thing. I collected a quantity of it in a kangaroo skin, but this took considerable time because the liquid oozed very slowly. I would not have taken this trouble were it not that I was pretty certain. Italics. I had discovered a spring of crude petroleum. Immediately, and by a kind of instinct, it occurred to me, this, this guy is like the Steven Seagal of... I'm pretty sure Steven Seagal is also that. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's the Steven Seagal of Steven Seagal. Uh, it occurred to me that I might make use of this oil as yet another means of impressing the blacks with my magical powers. I it, told It was a kind of instinct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whiter sense. <laughs> <laughs> my whitey sense is tingling. Oh, no. <laughs> I told no one of my discovery. Not even Yamba. First of all, because she wouldn't stop backseat gunpowdering. First of all, I constructed a sort of raft from the branches of trees, thoroughly saturating each branch with the oil. I also placed a shallow skin reservoir of oil on the upper end of the raft and concealed it with twigs and leaves. This done, I launched my interesting craft on... <laughs> On the waters of the lagoon, having so far carried out all my preparations in the strictest secrecy. When everything was ready, I sent out invitations by mailmen, smoke signals, and messages, message sticks to tribes both far and near to come and see me set fire to the water. In parentheses, I may remark, 
that with regard to smoke signals, white smoke only is allowed to ascend in wreaths and curls, while black smoke is sent up in one great volume. As by this time, my fame was pretty well established. The wonder-loving children of nature... Mm, the wonder-loving children of nature lost no time in responding to the summons, and at length, when the mystic glow of a central Australian evening has settled over the scene, a great gathering established itself on the shores of the lagoon. On such occasions, however, I always saw to it that my audience were not too near. But anyhow, there was little chance of failure, because the blacks had long since grown to believe in me blindly and implicitly. With much ceremony, I set fire to the raft, hoisted a little bark sail upon it, and pushed it off. It lay very low in the water, and as the amazed onlookers saw it gliding across the placid waters of the lagoon, enveloped in smoke and flames, they did actually believe that I had set fire to the water itself, particularly when the blazing oil was seen in lurid patches on the placid surface. They remained watching till the fire died down, and when they retired to their homes, more convinced than ever that the white man among them was indeed a great and powerful spirit. This guy... This, this guy. So I've included a link to his he's, complete memoirs. Uh, he's made which it is his career to just like, uh, yeah, this yeah, guy. To just like, whoa. But like he spends a while being like, well, I couldn't do this and I couldn't do this. But they believed in me blindly and implicitly. Yeah, I know. Much as these guys. Did. Yeah. Um, so um, you can you can read this. Mm-hmm. This It's it's just really a um, it almost reads like a parody of a travel. Like if you if you read. Yeah. like travel logs um it and but there's just one problem Mm. um can't think louis de rougemont never existed what in reality he was a man named henri louis grand a swiss liar who spent some time in the reading room at the british museum taking notes to weave into his narrative did the work he did he did the work so (laughs) um he he's had like a he worked as a like footman to a an australian politician or something for so had a, he been to australia not to central australia he worked for like some colonial guy for less than a year um there's also in the wikipedia there's like he also married and abandoned a wife <laughs> in australia. like that's that's what he did during that time. no further questions um, your honor <laughs> Um, so Yamba never existed, uh, nor did the tribe of caricatures of, he lived among, mm. nor did the pair of young white girls he rescued and raised as his own, which that's, was a that's really a relief, weird. Honestly. It was a really weird like part where I'm just like, who, who, <laughs> Wait. Um, you know, you got to write what you know and what he knows is like white ladies. So because mm-hmm. you got to insert some. Um, so Grant attempted to do damage control when this was found out because somebody was like, hey, I know that guy. Um, <laughs> and and so Grant wrote to a paper, like wrote to the Times or something, was like uh, about how absurd it was that anyone would say that he was de Rougemont, which only made the situation worse. Um, and then I can't just to wrap this up. Um, I can't help but quote Wikipedia here for the quick summary of his life post derougement, which says, quote, during 1899, Grant traveled to South Africa as a music hall attraction, quote, the greatest liar on earth, end quote. On a similar tour in Australia in 1901, he was booed from the stage. In July 1906, he appeared at the London Hippodrome and successfully demonstrated his turtle riding skills. That was one of the first things that people were like, we call BS. You can't ride a turtle. And he's like, ah, but I can. Um, and then I mean, continuing you can the quote. Ride a tortoise. 
I, mm. During the First World War, he reappeared as an inventor of a useless meat substitute. He died a poor man in London on the 9th of June, 1921. Just like, but boy, he he tried, you know? He he did. So shifting gears <laughs> from a, things that didn't happen in modern history to things that did happen in ancient history. Well, <laughs> our... <laughs> Our next example comes from cuneiform sources. I love them. We've previously talked about Ea Nazir and his Yelp reviews <laughs> that ring through the ages and secured his place as the worst copper salesman of all time. Uh, for that one, you can check out... Telebrock. Te- show and Telebrock. Show and Telebrock. Oh, right, right. Yeah, of the copper. which okay. we just released. Um, exactly. Great. Well, you already, yeah, so you're already familiar. Um, because today we are heading over to, Kana- to Kanesh for some succession action. Haven't seen it, but well, it's good. You know what it's about, though, right? I do. It's about like I do. I, I, yeah, I know. it's like exactly the kind of show that would make me deeply uncomfortable. Kanesh is the ancient name of the city that's now the site of Kultepe, in what's today Turkey, and what was by the early third millennium BCE a Karum, or a trading colony of the old Assyrian period. Sorry. Our example dates to the earliest, the early 19th century CE, mm. uh, when donkey caravans moved as far as Central Asia and into what's today Afghanistan and Pakistan. Mm. A robust market existed not only among people producing and exchanging material goods, but among investors and joint stockholdings. So people would like pull their silver to invest in a caravan, and then they would see dividends over the years to come. We know about this from thousands of tablets excavated from houses of expats from Ashur, whose careers were based in Kanesh. Many of them are contracts and letters with associates and family back home, uh, many of whom are women, uh, their wives or sisters. Uh, One such sister is Ahaha, who lived in Ashur while her brothers were off tending to the family business. This is known as the Beit Abini, um, our father's house. Hey, a Semitic language. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah, yeah. Like that's, this is like the, one of the, you know, some of the three words I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so she was single, consecrated to Ashur. Um, it just meant she was okay. a confirmed bachelorette. Yes. And she was stuck settling their father's estate after his death while all her brothers were out in Anatolia. The letters tell the story of a period of six or seven years during which their father's business associates and creditors wrung them dry, and eventually relationships among the siblings deteriorated, as outlined in Cecile Michel's book, Women of Ashur and Kanesh, um, which is actually like really really interesting like it's it's really compelling because it is it does it it's just like a lot of drama that's the really great thing about old assyrian letters is you just read family drama and you're like oh he did and it's just really like succession yeah yeah yeah. so well i also as we'll see it gets very successful i haven't watched the new season so no spoilies listeners literally Um, one such so one such letter features Ahaha asking one brother to intercede on her behalf when she realizes her other brothers have ripped her off. Anna's now going to read a translation of this. Um, so the so name is says, Ashur Mutapil. And that's the brother? Yeah, that's, okay. that's so her she, brother that she's writing to. Say to Ashur Mutapil. That's what the letter says. Thus says Ahaha. Quote, I tried to seize silver from the joint stock company administered by Don Ashur, but they said as follows. Puzar Ashur, Buzazu, and Ikupasha have already taken it. 
the those silver. are her other three brothers. Yes. Make him pay the silver there, seal it, and let it go over land in their name. Let a detailed letter from you come to me by the very next caravan, saying if they do pay the silver. Saying if they do pay the silver, so that I, so oh, here I can make the correct decision. I see. Okay, so so send a letter that they did it. Okay. Make them pay it and tell me, like, write me send back. Send me a receipt. <laughs> no, just like, like, tell me right away so that I can take care of it on this end. Okay. I have invested three and a half minas of silver with Puzer Ashur. Furthermore, concerning the ten minas of silver, I have here witnesses against him who can confirm that he should send it to me as soon as he arrives. When you enter Puzur Asher's house, raise this matter in the presence of the investors. Name and shame. Oh, yeah. And now, the guilt. You are my brother. I have no one except you. Do not listen to anyone's slander. Now is the time to do me a favor and to save me from financial stress. Oh, girl. Get it. Be sure to dispatch to me at least ten minas of silver. Nobody shall see the day of my ruin. Abu Shalim is bringing you a belt. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it ends. <laughs> yeah. Is now is that just like you left your belt at my house, or is no, that just like, like somebody sending the, along? A, yeah. But is no, it like just, to carry the silver or anything? No. Like that? Oh, just to, I think it's just like. Like by the way, P.S. Abu Shalim is bringing you a belt. <laughs> Yeah, so your pants so, will stop falling down. Yeah. So by the by, the Kanesh tablets tell us all kinds of things about life in, Assyri- in this Assyrian exclave and the business of Ahaha's family. Um, I'm most familiar with the fact that Asher Mutabil, her brother that she wrote to say, like, the, everyone else is screwing me. Like, you need to help me out here. Yeah. Um, so I'm most familiar with the fact that he had a wife there in Kanash, a woman named Kunania, uh, whom he abandoned when he went back to his at-home wife in Ashur. Uh, Kunania later had to petition for alimony for after he left her high and dry. Hmm. Uh, so that's, that's what I know. <laughs> Elsewhere... Another brother accuses her of ripping him off, so perhaps there are no heroes in this <laughs> it's just story. Just a bunch of terrible people. Yeah. Speaking Maybe. of no heroes, yes, Anna, are you familiar with the practice of bottomage? I am, but I'm going to say that I'm not. Okay, no, good. What okay. Is do it? you know? But do you know the story? This specific story. Uh, I the don't know. Story. I haven't. Okay. I haven't scrolled. Well, bottomage is a form of insurance that's no no longer practiced in which the owner of a ship could borrow insurance money against the boat itself. So against the bottom. So this is an example of synecdoche. Synecdoche. jody. Synecdoche. So this is when you use, it's like head of cattle, like where you use one part of something to describe the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So um, this, this insurance policy is to be repaid with a premium on top of it, uh, when the ship and its cargo reached its destination safely. So if the ship and its cargo were lost, there was no need to pay the policy back. Mm -hmm. Uh, The logic here is that if you're out on the sea and something happens to the ship that requires major repairs or replacement of cargo, you need the cash to fix it immediately. There's not really time for a claims adjuster (laughs) to come out with their clipboard when you are actively sinking. Uh, So this that paid upfront insurance policy is a bottom rate. Um, and if you've not caught on to the theme of the episode yet, it was a policy that could be abused. Um, but it was something that if you, if you were in that business, mm-hmm. um, the premium was super high. So you could make a ton of money, um, off of, 
um, just like shaking people down when they got where they were going. Insurance fraud is as old as time. Well, (laughs) it's it's as old as insurance. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So there were two ways to commit insurance fraud here. The first is taking out a bottomry against valuable cargo on a ship, but swapping it out for something cheap and then scuttling the boat. So this is worth zillions of money, but then don't put that on the ship put yeah you just put like potatoes and then you sink it and you're oh, like no. oh i'm, I'm out all stuff. these potatoes but good thing i got all this stuff yeah. yeah um so the shipmaster could keep both the high ticket cargo and the insurance money in that case hey, win-win. um the other way to do it would be to set sail with the valuable cargo, hide the boat somewhere and rename it, and then come back with a story of how the ship was lost at sea and never made it to the destination. You think that's why um, there's a tradition against renaming ships? Hmm. Uh, I, I don't know. Bad luck. Um, so we have a 4th century BCE record of one such case in Athens, litigated by, litigated by the oratory all-time Hall of Famer Demosthenes in his speech against Xenothemus. And Anna is going to play the role of Demosthenes. I beg of you all, men of the jury, if you ever attended closely to any matter to attend to this You will hear of a man's audacity and villainy that go beyond all bounds, provided I am able, as I hope to be, to tell you the whole tale of what he has done. Xenothemus, who is here before you, being an underling of Hegestratus, the ship owner, who he himself in his complaint states to have been lost at sea, how he does not add, but I will tell you, concocted with him the following fraud. Both of them borrowed money in Syracuse. Hegestratus admitted to those lending money to Xenothemus if inquiries were made that there was on board the ship a large amount of grain belonging to the latter, and the plaintiff admitted to those lending money to Hegestratus that the cargo of the ship was his. As one was the ship owner and the other a passenger, they were naturally believed in what they said of one another. Okay, so like, I'm a passenger on this ship. This is my so I have a sh- So I have a ship. Mm-hmm. You're my pal. You like imagine a world in which we're friends. <laughs> yep. Uh, I can stretch that far, <laughs> I think. Okay. Yeah. So I have a ship and you you've got grain and you're like, hey synergy. No, like, hey, what if I put this grain on your boat and then we do a little thing uh-huh. and then I say Oh no, oh my god, oh, no. all my <laughs> All my grain, grain. gone. (laughs) If I only had some grain. And, oh, and, um, and then I say, well, yeah, let's do it. We are going to make so much money. (laughs) And you say, yeah, like, we'll get enough money for you to replace your boat. It was kind of, it kind of sucked anyway. I, you know, sorry, but we all know it. And, and. You know, my grain, like, you know, my grain yield wasn't that great this year. So it's kind of like, ugh, grain. So, like, let's just throw it on the boat, sink the boat, uh, question mark, question mark, question mark, profit. Yeah. No one, this could not possibly go wrong. This is how I but plan this, things. This <laughs> really, I'm really glad you're also so, here. Moving back to. Minus the fraud. Just to. Say that. Thanks. Moving like back to mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the case. So this is, this okay. is like, so like argued in court. Yes. He was like a prosecutor. Like yeah. this is, And so he has yeah. described the, the nature of the caper. So here we go. But immediately on getting the money, they sent it home to Massalia and put 
nothing on board the ship. The agreement being, as is usual in all such cases, that the money was to be paid back if the ship reached port safely. They laid a plot to sink the ship so that they might defraud their creditors. Hegestratus, accordingly, when they were two or three days' voyage from land, went down by night into the hold of the vessel and began to cut a hole in the ship's bottom. <laughs> wily coyote with like an acme saga. No, basically, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, while Xenathemus, as though knowing nothing about it, remained on deck with the rest of the passengers. When the noise was heard, those on the vessel saw that something wrong was going on in the hold and rushed down to bear aid. Hegestratus, being caught in the act and expecting to pay the penalty, took to flight and, hotly pursued by others, flung himself into the sea. Oh no. It was dark and he missed the ship's boat and so was drowned. Thus, oh boy, oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> Sick burn. Thus, miserable as he was, he met a miserable end as he deserved, suffering the fate which he purposed to bring about for others. I mean, fair, if he did sink the yeah. ship. And it cost and he was planning to like lives. Yeah. Yeah. And he was planning to like jump into the basically the lifeboat. Yeah. Bye. And like toodle off. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah. So I mean, that I don't that's disagree, a, but wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am. I, S-tier. but I mean, we have slightly different views on like capital punishment, me and Demosthenes. No, um. <laughs> I agree. I'm just saying the way that he argues it. But yeah, so this was a this was a court case. Yeah. In I which, love some court like the yeah. yeah. Um so that's a like one of the earliest cases of like written um attestations of uh insurance fraud. Hmm. Another example of ancient fraud might be a bit more complicated. Uh imagine when you unwrap it a bit. Hey. I'm talking about animal mummies from ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very, this is a very short one because I was just like, I'm running out of time. <laughs> and there's like a real banger at the end. So I just want to <laughs> we're working our way there. I mean, so in 2015, it's already Lydia McKnight. Episode. Yeah, right. Mm. Uh, in 2015, Lydia McKnight and colleagues at the University of Manchester and Manchester Museum scanned the 800. It's a lot. Animal mummies they had in their stores and were pers- so sprung. <laughs> And were surprised to discover that only a third of them were mummified animals. Which isn't a, like, when they are animal mummies, they're sort of one thing. You kind of want in there. Um, so a third of them were mummified animals. An additional third contained bits of animal or animal adjacent things, uh, like eggshells or nest material. And the remaining third contained nothing at all. Those sort of more effigies than mummies. Um, so they, they would have been used as religious offerings mm-hmm. and were subject to the whims of supply and demand. Mm. Um, so uh, it, it, I don't know. One would think, an, an uninformed one would think that if you want an animal mummy, you probably want it to be a mummified animal. Right. Um, I mean, maybe maybe these ones were vegan. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> They're mummies. <laughs> so um, on the subject of whether this was fraudulent, McKnight is quoted as saying... Am I Lydia McKnight? Great. You're playing the role of Lydia McKnight. We think they were mummifying pieces of animals that were lying around. 
or materials associated with the animals during their lifetime, so nest material or eggshells. They were special because they had been in close proximity with the animals, even though they weren't the animals themselves. So we don't think it's forgery or fakery. It's just that they were using everything they could find. And often the most beautifully wrapped mummies don't contain the animal remains themselves. Yeah, which is an interesting take. Yeah, it's just a little faux. Could, it could be. It's like, like, like having a plastic case. house plant. Mm-hmm. But it also sort of feels like she's like carrying water for like like mummy, mummy fraud. Mummy vendors. <laughs> Yeah, but for the ones that contain nothing at all, we might never know if it would have been a problem had it been discovered at the time, or if there'd be a crackdown on big mummy for passing off vegan hey, mummies. See, we don't know. We, I know. We, I had we that, got to yeah. the same place. I think I also tried to like come up with like mummy like in <laughs> in there too, and it just like didn't work. Um, so Anna, impossible mummy. Yes. <laughs> Beyond mummy. Um, (laughs) What happens if the goods or services being rendered are of a more ephemeral nature? Uh, Maybe something perishable, like food. Oh, no. Unmummified animals. Um, (laughs) Ideally. Uh, How might we gain insight into the possibility of fraud in those cases, apart from somebody being like, hey, this guy sold me gross meat and I barfed my brains out. You can look at regulatory laws. That's all I got. Yeah. There we go. Really? Yeah. One way is examining sources written in a top-down approach. The existence of a law prohibiting something can be thought to imply the existence of that prohibited thing, or at least a fear that it might come up. I didn't didn't scroll. Good Good job, me. I had a smart. (laughs) Laws Laws are generally written in response to perceived threats to order. Sure. Uh, whether those perceptions are founded or not is another subject, but my last story for this section is an early example of quality assurance regulations. Do you know how many boring blogs I had to read from like the insurance industry? Like <sighs> to get to like service. actual sources. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like I, I was doing this like on Amtrak. I was like doing this like on my commute where I'm just like, Ooh. <laughs> it's like, I hope no one thinks I like this. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on an Amtrak reading about insurance. Just a little busy business lady doing it's just like business. The, it's just like the history of quality assurance. And I'm just like, Oh, <laughs> it's good that someone's. I'm glad someone's out there assuring that quality. Oh, boy. An article by Sun Jiahui for Chinese cultural magazine World of Chinese titled How Ancient Chinese Scammers Tricked Consumers outlines, well, how ancient Chinese scammers tricked consumers. It's Um, a good title. It's a great, it's a great title. Uh, It's also a great article. So unfortunately, this isn't something I could look into much more deeply as I had trouble finding additional English language sources or translations of Mm. the texts she cited. But if you are a historian of Chinese commerce, hit me up. Hi, (laughs) the dirt podcast (laughs) at gmail.com. Yeah. So according to Sun, the earliest example of an, oh, ew, don't do that, is found in the Book of Rights. Book of Wrongs. R-I-T-E-S. Mm-hmm. A text laying out expectations for decorum and respectable behavior that dated to the Western Zhao Dynasty, which was between 1046 and 771 BCE. Um, that text prohibited the sale of such things as unripe grains and fruits. Trees that are not fully grown. Beasts, fish, and turtles that are not fully grown or properly cleaned. But also, like, that's really important. Like, if you, like, are 
uh, like if you are dressing an animal or yeah. like yeah. processing it, not not cleaning it properly could lead to uh, people dying. Like yeah, and especially just, like if you're talking about like a, a scale of consumption of those things that sort of on a... At an industrial yeah, scale. That's what that's what I was trying to say. The first appearance of laws cracking down on the sale of fake goods mm. is in the earliest legal codex, the Canon of Laws, uh, which was written in the Warring States period, so from one. 475 to 221 BCE. Oh, before the um, Qing Dynasty. It's coming up. Yeah! Um, and so, Anna, tell me, tell me what these laws are. Anyone who sold fake medicine would be flogged. They flogged for flogging. If any death or injury was caused by the counterfeit products, the seller the seller would be exiled. Okay, well. I know. Could be worse. Yeah, it could be like now when you just like get to like I meant have an Instagram account. Oh, I mean there's that, but I, I that's the <laughs> other end. I was thinking, you know, oh. uh, death or injury oh. results in execution, which like Yeah. Well, Hey. Oh, hey. In the Chen Dynasty, which was the one to follow, as Anna knows. Uh, so the Chen Dynasty that, that um, occurred from 221 to 206 BCE. Um, I like knowing things about things. Okay. People who sold fake medicines could face punishments ranging from tattoos to corporal punishment, cutting off the nose, cutting off a foot or toes, castration, and even decapitation. I mean, cutting off the head. Yes. <laughs> Only, I mean, one of those is more fatal than the other ones. None of them are great. Um, and then what came after the Chen Dynasty? The Han Dynasty, which is, uh, yep, yep. The Han Dynasty, um, which, um, which, which ran, uh, which uh, <laughs> its floor was uh, 206 BCE to 220 CE. Um, that's the period when the Silk Road started popping off. And among the goods traded through and with China came some that weren't quite up to snuff, but were certainly up to sniff. Stinky? Yeah. Oh, I'm Tell scrolling. About I'm scrolling. Hang on. Rotten food shouldn't be sold in the market. Once found, it should be burned. And if it caused any poisoning, both the offender and government official in charge should be punished. Hey, good. Accountability. That's Yeah. That's so, good. So, yeah. So um, for more examples throughout Chinese history and also just other types of mm -hmm. things throughout history, um, check out the article in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So, Anna, mm. we've had fun today. We've had stories of claiming and denouncing rightful dominion over states, making up states altogether, um, catching and being caught scamming for people for financial gain. Sure. But what about employing deceit to settle a beef? That one I'm okay with in certain certain circumstances. Yeah, yeah. so we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. So um, that's what we're going to round out the episode yes. with at the end. But before we do that, I have an art history question for you. Yes. Yes. Are you familiar with the disumbrationist school? I'm not. I've I've never heard that. I was trying to use context clues to figure. It's like the unclouding school. What is? It? Yeah, what? I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's weird art. It's weird. Like okay. Like it's so it's oh from the nineteen twenties. Yeah, so it's it's to the nineteen twenties, and it was established by a Russian guy, uh, Pavel Jordanovich. I scrolled. And yeah, I so this is the earliest painting. Uh -huh. um, and so it's called Exaltation, a.k.a. Yes, We Have No Bananas. Um, and you want to tell us yeah. tell us what you're seeing here? 
this is the this is like the the like first painting that like put the disembracianists on the map and i can imagine why that would be um okay so so it's hey quick question are these the tones in which the painting i don't know is this actually a, a grayscale version okay so it might be the image that i'm looking at is more of a green is scale. sort of yeah gray green scale um a bit, bit monochromatic but um it is a woman in the foreground she is shown from sort of the bust upward and in her le- well yeah in her left hand she is sort of triumphantly holding a chomped banana like it's peeled and there's been a chomp taken out of it yeah she is i i think she's being <clears throat> depicted as as sort of polynesian she sort of looks like you know the the um when Gauguin went to Tahiti and painted all mm-hmm. those ladies and also left Who, his wife. Like, weren't wearing shorts. Right. They weren't no, wearing she, yeah. much. Yeah. 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 So, so she's, she's got she's a flower here not wearing much. Yeah. She, is there a little skull on a stick? Yeah. I think okay. so, yeah. Is that attached to her head or is it behind her? Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's, it's behind her. So there's like a little, uh, a path up a hill to a little hut. And I think next to the hut, there's a stake with a head on it. Okay. I think that's what, yeah, there's yeah. also a tree and possibly What do you think cave. she's doing with her face? Grimacing. Is she grimacing? She's, okay. I think she's like. She's got like a milk mustache. But banana. And... No, she like really chomped into that banana oh. and went all around her oh, face. okay, okay. And okay. like really. Okay. And she's also got Great. crazy eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so. According to an interview with Jordanovich in... We have uh, to put this on the inside. I have to remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, we will. Yeah. Um, (laughs) To an interview with Jordanovich in Revue du Vrai et du Beau. Do do you want me to be French? Yes, please. Revue du Vrai et du Beau. Thank you. It, quote, represented the breaking of the shackles of womanhood. The woman, he said, had just killed a missionary. If you look closely, you can see the missionary's skull sitting on a pole behind her. Uh In addition, she has just taken a bite out of a banana, even though women were forbidden to eat bananas on her island. She was waving the banana above her head to represent her newfound freedom, end quote. So that's why it's an an exaltation. What even is this? So the disumbrationists were a major hit with critics who couldn't get enough of the, right, of the artist's candor and, like, visceral emotion on display. Sure. Um, Another painting, Illumination, was described by Jordanovich as, it is midnight. And the, well, no, wait, before we, before I read it, what do you see in this painting? (laughs) I like this one a lot. Yeah, it's kind of cool in, like, a... Um, I don't know, sort of weird Ralph Bakshi horror kind of way. Um, it okay, so it is a dark, smudgy background, and there are sort of jagged lightning uh, bolts coming down from the top. In the middle, there's something that looks like a wind, a small window panel with <laughs> two goofy little eyes peeping out of it, and then throughout. Um, the rest of the pa- or the rest of the piece are dotted uh, like scattered eyes, just like isolated, yeah, eyeballs watching you. Yeah, yeah, I like it. It's really upsetting. Like it's a really unsettling. That uh, what you I just look at said. Here I feel dread. What you just said really distills a, a, a big part of your aesthetic that is just like that I associate with you. <laughs> 
I like it. It's upsetting. <laughs> like, I don't like to be upset. I don't I, seek out no, dread. No, I do, Well, see, I do, I've had to explain this to people before where like I do it because it's a way to like exorcise I, it. I, like I it's a way to that. like I just to like, draw it out. And then you kind text thing. me things. And oh, I'm no. Like, but that, those are different kind I, of upsetting things. I don't send you like the sad things. Oh, no. I okay. mean, I appreciate so, that. Anyway, okay, here we go. So Weird. Jordanovich Weird describes art. this painting as, It is midnight and the drunken man stumbles home, anticipating a storm from his indignant wife. Oh, he okay. sees her eyes and the lightning of her wrath. Mm-hmm. It is conscience at work. I mean, I like this. This is really kind of getting into the territory of like who gets to decide what art is. <laughs> Cuz well, like this yeah. sounds like a parody so of art you, being art. You you hang out, you hang out looking at that painting yeah, while yeah. I scroll. Don't scroll. Okay. And I'm going to tell you. 3 years after Drodanovich's exaltation, aka yes we have no bananas, a story hit the front page of the Los Angeles Times featuring an interview with novelist Paul Jordan Smith. Hey. Pavel Drodanovich. Hey now. He'd made the whole thing up. As he revealed in this exclusive interview he did with the LA Times, Smith was a total wife guy and was angry that critics had panned his wife's paintings as too old school. The information I'm sharing in this segment is from the Museum of Hoaxes, which I obviously couldn't say up top without spoiling it. While Smith's wife, Sarah Bixby Smith, tried to update her style to something more modern, the unmasked artist said, So, quote, Sarah Bixby Smith said, no. Oh, okay. So Paul. Paul Jordan Pavel. Smith says. Okay. Sorry. Quote, I asked for paint and canvas and said I'd do a real modern. I'd never tried to paint anything in my life. Given the oldest tubes of red and green paint and a worn brush, I took up a defective canvas and in a few. Okay. So that explains about the colors. Uh, I, and in a few minutes splashed out the crude outlines of an asymmetrical savage holding up what was intended to be a starfish, but turned out a banana. I labeled it, yes, we have no bananas, took it to the dinner table for the delight or disgust of the family, and thought that was the end of the matter. End quote. Yeah. So, men interested folks, find yourself a man who will establish a critically acclaimed bogus school of art just to humiliate everyone who said your paintings are bad. Do not settle for less. I mean, I'm on board with this guy so isn't far. This, like, he's, he's on his wife's team. Like, that's... This, uh, yeah, isn't that so... And, like, these, like ridiculous paintings there yes. are a few more but they're just like so and and like the the critics were just like oh i know this and is just this is very, it's very just like i know it's, something you don't yeah <laughs> mr critic uh so and finally and finally i have one last story that is lifted from my most frequent recurring nightmare that of brandon lee scottish mm. <laughs> not brandon <laughs> Not the actor. Um, sure. In Brandon Lee, son of Bruce Lee, who died during the filming of The Crow. I I know who Brandon Lee is. Well, so Brandon Lee, Scottish. I understand. Um, in 1993, moved with his mother from Canada to the suburbs of Glasgow, Scotland, and enrolled in Beersden Academy. Uh, so, which was in Beersden, which is a interesting, very nice suburb. Do bears have um, a den so, there? Oh, I guess it is spelled Bear's Den. I didn't even didn't even notice that. It very much so well maybe was, pronounced Beer's Den. It I might think, be I, I assumed it was Beersden. He was a shy, nerdy kid, but still managed to make friends and be a great student. In fact, he gained six hires, uh, including five A grades. Sure. Because he uh, taking 
English, maths, chemistry, physics, and biology on his exams. Uh, And he still found time to star in the school production of South Pacific. Wow. Um, Those exam results landed him a place at Dundee University, where he enrolled in a medicine degree the following year. Uh, So... Even after he went to uh, uni, he stayed, Brandon stayed in touch with his Beersden school friends with the occasional phone call and meeting up on breaks from school. A couple of platonic girlfriends invited him along for a trip to Tenerife in Spain um, in early August of 1995. And it was fun, but not without some drunk teen drama. Oh, no. And then two weeks later... Brandon's old headmaster, Norman McLeod, um, who was one of his rec rec letter writers for Dundee, received an anonymous phone call stating that Brandon Lee was an imposter. McLeod (laughs) reached out to Lee and asked him to bring... I know, sorry. Do you want me to start that over? No, it's fine. McLeod reached out to Lee and asked him to bring his birth certificate to clear up a discrepancy in his records, which he did. And which showed that he was a 32-year-old man named Brian McKinnon, who had graduated from Beersden Academy once before in 1980. (laughs) Some teachers had commented on his mature appearance, but none seemed to recognize him as their own former student. So there's a link here, Anna. Yeah. That says click here when I tell you to. So I'm going, this is a link to his yearbook photo. Uh And you are going to click on that and tell me if you think that is a 17-year-old boy. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> In response to your question, I don't think that's a 17-year-old boy. So, um, he d- I mean, he does have, I will say, a young-looking face. But he is a- not 17. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna quote now from yes. a 1995 interview with McKinnon that man um, is after he got found 29 out. 29 at his youngest. <laughs> yeah. uh, so ironically, Brian's ruse had come to an end just when it seemed he was on the home straight. Uh, this is the this was the article, not mm-hmm. him personally. Mm-hmm. Um, there had been no problems throughout Brian's school year. It seemed to go fairly smoothly. On reflection, he feels his popularity was a byproduct of the school year, but worthwhile. It was a byproduct, but worthwhile. Quote, I was never trying to recreate my original school days. I was popular enough the first time and got very good grades, but in fact, I re- didn't really enjoy my last two years at school. Work moved slowly, and I'd been unable to do one of the subjects I wanted to do. When I went back as Brandon Lee, I wasn't trying to be popular. End quote. So he just wanted to, to, he wanted a mulligan? Yeah. Huh. So turns out when he went to Tenerife with his keen gal pals, he didn't do so on a fake passport. He traveled as Brian McKinnon, grown man. Um, so if you have, if you've ever traveled to another country, frequently they look at your passport when you check in and Um, other people can see it also one of the girls saw his passport and later amid the drunk teen drama told him to act his age because she was zing paging dr old guy to the burn unit yeah Um, but upon further reading because i got like really worried i was like oh does this guy have like something going on like this feels like um but his motivations were very relatable to specifically me 
The first time he went to university, he says, he got sick and failed a bunch of exams, Mm -hmm. which resulted in him getting thrown out of Glasgow University. Mm -hmm. He petitioned for a second chance, but the system didn't care about him and extended him no grace. That's where the relatable to meanness stops. Rather than starting school again 15 years later after lots of therapy and reconciliation, I could have just shaved down my eyebrows and permed my hair and started college all over again like he did. But ironically, that's how I started college in the first place. You had a perm? I, I did that. have a perm. I remember that. Yeah. I remember you had a hair, like a, you, you cut your hair short at some point, but that was like sophomore yeah. year. That was after freshman year, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, when I came to school, I had the, the like remnants of a perm. <laughs> My hair was a little crunchy. Um, but I did have very thin eyebrows. So that's what he did to disguise his appearance. He, he gave himself a perm and he shaved off his eyebrows. Which, that, if you that look does at that explain photo, the eyebrows. Like little... Yeah. I mean, <laughs> as someone who, when stressed, just kind of like rubs at my eyebrows, so I have similar little patches to him. No, but he just like, do, do, do. Um, so that, Anna, that was is so a roundup of pretenders. I love, I, I love a scam. I mean, I don't love a scam when people genuinely get hurt, but. Yeah. Like this guy was just okay, traveling with a bunch of teens. Like it doesn't look That great. sounds horrible. That yeah. sounds like that sounds if it he were doesn't like sound fun for it, anyone. I think that I think that like if he went like on holiday with a bunch of teens after he got like arrested, he should like time served. Well, uh, I've been very depressed. It's, but I wrote this. I it, you did so good, bud. Thank thanks. you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it because every inch of my body hurts, and I feel like a couple my, inches more than others because that stinging nettle. Oh yeah, I got I brushed past a stinging nettle today, and all right, uh, all right. Well, thanks everybody. It's been great. Uh, see you next time. I guess we love you. Thank you so much. Bye. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.